everyone, I am Bob Keezer. This is the Son of Man Urantia Project. Today's episode is chapter 46, The Visit to Philadelphia. Throughout the three months or so of the Parian mission, ten of the apostles would go with Jesus when he visited the 70 evangelists, while two of them would stay behind to teach the crowds at Pella. Usually, three to five hundred believers would follow Jesus when he went on these trips around Peria. On this trip to Philadelphia, Simon Peter and his brother Andrew were the two apostles that returned to Pella to teach. By the time Jesus and the other ten arrived in Philadelphia, over six hundred people were tagging along behind them. No miracles had happened during the Decapolis tour, and except for healing the lepers, none had happened on the Parian mission. The gospel was being announced with power, not miracles, and most of the time this was being done without Jesus or the apostles being present. Jesus and the ten apostles arrived at Philadelphia on Wednesday, February 22nd. They rested up on Thursday and Friday, and then Friday evening, James spoke in the synagogue where they decided to hold a general meeting the next night. Everyone was happy about the progress at Philadelphia and in the other villages, and David's messengers told them all about the kingdom's progress in the rest of Palestine, along with bringing them good news from Alexandria and Damascus. Breakfast with the Pharisees In Philadelphia, another wealthy and influential Pharisee, who was one of Abner's groups of believers, held a breakfast on Saturday morning for Jesus. Again, Jesus was the guest of honor, and again, everyone knew that Jesus was coming to town. So, a lot of the people from Jerusalem and elsewhere came to Philadelphia. About 40 of these Pharisees, along with a few lawyers, showed up for the breakfast being held for Jesus. As Jesus was standing by the door talking with Abner, and the rest of the people were taking their seats. One of the leading Pharisees from Jerusalem, a member of the Sanhedrin, showed up. By this time, the host was already sitting at the table. This Pharisee, as he usually did, went to take his seat of honor just to the left of the guest. But the host had reserved that seat for Jesus, and the seat immediately to the host's right was reserved for Abner. So, the host told the Pharisee to take the fourth seat to his left, which really offended this dignitary. Most of the people at the breakfast were friendly to Jesus and the gospel, and they were enjoying themselves as they visited with one another. Only Jesus' enemies noticed that he did not wash his hands And while Abner did not wash before the meal, 
he, excuse me, and while Abner did wash before the meal, he did not do so between the courses. Close to the end of the breakfast, a man came in from the street. This man had long suffered from some disease, and now his arms and legs were all swollen out of proportion. This man had recently been baptized by Abner's bunch, and while he did not ask Jesus to heal him, he knew that he had Jesus knew that he had come to breakfast so that Jesus would notice him. This man knew that Jesus was not performing many miracles at the time, but he figured that if Jesus saw how bad, bad off he was, it might appeal to his compassion. And he was right. When he entered the room, both Jesus and the guy from the Sanhedrin noticed him. The Pharisee immediately let everyone know that he was upset about a man who was sick like that being there. But when the man looked at Jesus, Jesus' expression was so kind that the man went over and sat himself on the floor next to him. As the meal was ending, Jesus looked around at the other guests, and then, after giving the man a meaningful glance, he said, My friends, teachers in Israel and learned lawyers, I want to ask you a question. Is it lawful to heal the sick and those with disease on the Sabbath or not? But the people at the breakfast table knew Jesus too well. They kept quiet. They held their peace and would not answer his question. Then Jesus went over to the sick man and taking him by the hand said, Get up and go your way. You have not asked to be healed, but I know your heart's desire and your soul's faith. Before the man left the room, Jesus returned to his seat and said to those sitting at the table, My father does miracles like this, not to tempt you into the kingdom, but to reveal himself to those of you who are already in the kingdom. You can see that it would be like the Father to do these things. Because if one of you had a favorite pet that fell down a well on the Sabbath, you would immediately go and save it. And since no one answered him, and since it appeared that his host agreed with what was happening, Jesus stood up and said to everyone, My friends, when you are invited to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the most important seat, because maybe someone more honored than you has been invited. Then the host will have to ask you to give up your place to this other, more honored guest. If this happens, with shame, you will have to take a lower place at the table. Instead, when you are invited to a feast, it would be wise to look for the lowest place and take your seat there. This way, when the host looks around at his guests, he can say to you, My friend, 
Why sit in the lowest seat? Come up higher. And thus the person will be glorified in the presence of his fellow guest. Do not forget, everyone who praises himself will be humbled, while he who truly humbles himself will be praised. So when you give a supper, do not always invite just your family, your friends, and your rich neighbors so they can return the favor and invite you to their dinners. Sometimes invite the poor, the maimed, and the blind. This way you will be blessed in your heart because you know the lame and the poor cannot repay your loving ministry. Parable of the Great Supper As Jesus finished speaking, one of the lawyers who wanted to relieve the silence said without thinking, Blessed is he who will eat bread in the kingdom of God, which was a common saying back in those days. And then Jesus told them a parable that even his friendly host was compelled to take to heart. He said, There was a ruler who was giving a great supper, and after having invited many guests, he sent his servants out at dinner time to tell those who were invited, Come, for everything is ready now. But all of them began to make excuses. The first person who was invited said, I have just bought a farm, and I have to work on it. I pray you excuse me. Another person who was invited said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I have to go and get them. I pray you excuse me. And then another person said, I have just gotten married, so I cannot come. So the servants went back and told this to their master. When the master of the house heard this, he was very angry. And turning to his servants, he said, I have prepared this marriage feast. The fatlings are killed, and everything is ready for my guest. But they have rejected my invitation. Every one of them has gone off to his lands and his stuff, and they even disrespect my servants who invite them to come to my feast. So, go quickly out into the streets and lanes of the city, out into the highways and the byways, and bring the poor and the outcast and the blind and the lame back here so that the marriage feast will have guests. And the servants did as their Lord commanded, and there was still room for more guests. Then the Lord said to his servants, Go out now into the roads and the countryside, and convince those who are there to come here, so that my house will be full. I declare that none of those who were invited first will taste my supper. And the servants did as their master commanded, and the house was filled. And when the people at breakfast heard these words, they left, and every man went to his own home. At least one of the Pharisees, who had been sneering at Jesus that morning, understood the meaning of this parable, because he was baptized that day and publicly announced his faith in the gospel of the kingdom.
Abner preached on this parable that night at his meeting with the general council of believers. The next day, all of the apostles tried their hand at interpreting, interpreting this parable of the Great Supper. Although Jesus listened with interest to all of their different interpretations, he was steadfast in refusing to offer them any more help. All he would say was, let every man find out the meaning for himself and in his own soul. The woman with the spirit of infirmity. Abner had arranged for Jesus to teach in the synagogue on this Sabbath. It was the first time Jesus was in a synagogue since the Sanhedrin had closed all of them to him and his teachings. At the end of the service, Jesus looked down and saw an elderly woman sitting there depressed and whose body looked more bent over than normal for someone of her age. This woman had long lived in fear and all the joy had passed out of her life. As Jesus stepped down from the platform, he went over to her and touching her on the shoulder said, Woman, if you would only believe your depression, would go away. And this woman, who had been bound up by fear and depression for more than 18 years, believed Jesus, and by faith, immediately stood up straight. When this woman saw that she could stand erect, she lifted her voice and glorified God. Even though this woman's problem was wholly mental, and her bowed-over body was the result of her depression. The people thought that Jesus had healed a real physical disorder. Although the congregation at Philadelphia was itself friendly toward Jesus, the chazan, or ruler, of the synagogue was an unfriendly Pharisee, and he also thought that Jesus had healed a physical disorder. So, since he was put out that Jesus had ventured to do such a thing on the Sabbath, he stood up before everyone and said, Are there not six days that men should do all their work? In these working days, then come and be healed, but not on the Sabbath day. After the unfriendly Chazan said this, Jesus returned to the speaker's platform, and he said, Why play the part of hypocrites? Do not every one of you on the Sabbath let his ox out of the stall and lead him over to his water? If it is okay to do that on the Sabbath, should not this woman, who is a daughter of Abraham and who has bound, been bound up by evil for 18 years, be untied from her bondage and led to drink the waters of life and liberty, even on the Sabbath. And as the woman continued to glorify God, Jesus' critic was put to shame, and the congregation joined her in rejoicing that she had been healed. As a result of this public criticism of Jesus, the chasm of the synagogue was replaced with one of Jesus' followers. 
Jesus often helped release people from their fear, depression, and mental illness. The people, though, continued to believe that these were physical healings or that he had expelled an unclean spirit from the person. Jesus taught in the synagogue again on Sunday, and later at noon that day, many people were baptized by Abner in the river south of the city. In the morning, Jesus and the apostles would have started getting ready to head back to the Pella camp, but one of David's messengers had showed up the night before and changed their plans. He had an urgent message for Jesus from his friends near Bethany, near at Bethany, near Jerusalem. The message from Bethany. It was late that Sunday night, February 26th, when a runner from Bethany showed up at Philadelphia with a message from Mary and Martha that said, Lord, he whom you love is very sick. Jesus got this message at the end of the evening conference and just as he was saying good night to the apostles. At first, Jesus said nothing. This was one of those times when Jesus would pause and he would seem to be communicating with someone outside of himself. Then, looking up, Jesus told the messenger loud enough so that the apostles could hear him, This sickness is not really to the death. Do not doubt that it can be used to glorify God and praise the Son. Jesus was very fond of Mary, Martha, and her brother Lazarus. He had an intense love for all three of them. His first and human thought was to go at once to help them. But another idea came to his combined human divine mind. He had almost given up hope that the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem would ever accept the kingdom. But he still loved his people. He now came to a plan to give the scribes and Pharisees in Jerusalem one more chance to accept his teaching. Furthermore, he decided, his father willing, to make this last appeal to Jerusalem the most astounding wonder of his entire earth career. The Jews clung to the idea of a miracle-working deliverer. And although Jesus refused to stoop to performing miracles or assuming political power, he now asked his father for permission to show us his so far unshown power over life and death. The Jews were in the habit of burying their dead the day that they died. This was because of the warm climate. A lot of times, they put someone in a tomb who was only comatose, and on the second or even third day, the person would walk out of the tomb. But the Jews also believed that while the, spirit, while the person's spirit or soul might hang around the body for two or three days, it never stayed any longer. That too much decay had set in by the fourth day and that no one ever came out of the tomb after that long of a time. 
And it was for these reasons that Jesus waited a full two days in Philadelphia before he got ready to head to Bethany. So, on early Wednesday morning, Jesus told his apostles, Let us prepare to go at once back to Judea. When the apostles heard this, they went off by themselves to talk. Jesus, James took the lead in the discussion, and they all agreed that it would be stupid to let Jesus go back to Judea. With all of them in agreement, they went back to Jesus, and James said, Master, you were in Jerusalem a few weeks ago, and the leaders tried to kill you while the people wanted to stone you. You gave these men their chance to receive the truth then, and we will not let you go back to Judea now. Then Jesus said, But you do not understand that there are twelve hours of the day that work can be done safely. If a man walks in the day, he does not stumble because he has light. If a man walks at night, he is liable to stumble since he does not have light. As long as my day lasts, I am not afraid to enter Judea. I want to do this one mighty work for these Jews. I want to give them one more chance to believe, even on their own terms, of showing them the outward glory and the visible power of the Father and the love of the Son. Besides, do you not realize that our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep and I want to go and wake him up? Then one of the apostles said, Master, if Lazarus has fallen asleep, then he will be sure to recover. Back in those days, it was a Jew's custom to talk about death like it was a form of sleep. And since the apostles did not understand that Jesus meant that Lazarus had left this world, he now plainly said, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes, even if the others are not saved by this, that I was not there, because now you will have a new reason to believe in me, and because what you will see should strengthen all of you for the day when I will leave you and return to the Father. When they could not talk Jesus out of going into Judea, and when some of the apostles were even unwilling to go with him, Thomas stepped up and said to all of them, We have told the Master our fears, but he is determined to go to Bethany. I am satisfied it means the end, that they will surely kill him. But if that is the Master's choice, then let us act like men of courage. Let us go also so that we can die with him. And it was always this way. In matters requiring deliberate and sustained courage, Thomas was always the mainstay of the Twelve Apostles. On the way to Bethany, on the way to Judea, almost 50 of Jesus' friends and enemies followed after him. On Wednesday, at the lunch break, Jesus talked to both the apostles and this group of people 
on the terms of salvation. At the end of the lesson, he told them the parable of the Pharisee and the publican, which in those days is what they called a tax collector. Jesus said, You see, then, that the Father gives salvation to men's children, and this salvation is a free gift to everyone who has the faith to receive sonship in the divine family. There is nothing that a man can do to earn this salvation. Self-righteous works cannot buy God's favor, and praying a lot in public will not make up for lacking faith in your heart. You can deceive men by your outward acts, but God looks into your souls. What I am telling you is well illustrated by two men who went into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood stood inside and prayed to himself, O God, I thank you that I am not like other men who are unjust, adulterers, uneducated, extortioners, or even like this tax collector next to me. I fast twice a week, and I pay temple taxes on all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far away, would not so much as lift his eyes to heaven, and instead beat his chest, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, that the tax collector that the tax collector went home with God's approval instead of the Pharisee, because everyone who brags about himself will be humbled, but everyone who humbles himself will be uplifted. That night in Jericho, the unfriendly Pharisees tried to trick Jesus by getting him to talk about marriage and divorce just like the Pharisees did one time in Galilee. But Jesus avoided getting into a discussion about the laws for divorce among the Jews and Pharisees because contrasted against the better marriage laws of the Jewish code, the Pharisees' interpretation of Moses' divorce statues were lax and disgraceful. The Pharisee and the tax collector represented both bad and good religion. The Pharisee judged himself by the lowest standard, while the tax collector squared himself against the highest ideal. To the Pharisees, devotion was an excuse to do nothing, a sham used to show the people how self-righteous they were, and a way to fool themselves into thinking that they were spiritually secure with God. To the tax collector, Devotion was his way of rousting his soul to the need for confession, repentance, and acceptance by faith of God's mercy and forgiveness. The Pharisee was looking for justice. The tax collector was looking for mercy. The law of the universe is, ask and you will receive, seek and you will find. While Jesus avoided an argument with the Pharisees about marriage, he did say that marriage was the highest ideal of all human relationships. 
At the same time, he disapproved of the divorce practices of the Jerusalem Jews, which allowed a man to divorce his wife for anything from being a bad cook or housekeeper to him falling for another better-looking woman. The Pharisees even went so far as to say that an easy divorce was a special right of the Jewish people, especially the Pharisees. So while Jesus did not tell them what their laws should be, he did bitterly condemn them breaking marriage vows, and he pointed out the injustice that happens to the women and children. Jesus never agreed with any practice that gave man or gave men advantage over women. He only supported those teachings that placed women equal with men. Although Jesus did not give them new rules to govern marriage and divorce, he did urge the Jews to live up to their own laws and higher teachings. He constantly referred them back to their own scriptures for help along these lines. Jesus was able to uphold their highest ideals of marriage while he avoided saying much about how they actually practiced divorce or the idea that they had special privileges to do so. It was hard for the apostles to understand why Jesus did not want to speak too much about social, economic, scientific, or political problems. They did not fully realize that Jesus' mission on earth was exclusively to reveal spiritual and religious truths. Later that evening, the apostles continued to ask questions about marriage and divorce, and Jesus managed to clear up many of their misconceptions. At the end of this talk, Jesus said, Marriage is honorable, and it is to be desired by all men. The fact that the Son of Man is doing his earth mission alone is in no way a reflection of the desirability of marriage. That I should work like this is the Father's will, but this same Father has made male and female, and it is his divine will that men and women should find their highest service and resulting joy in establishing homes to have and train children. And in the creation of those children, the parents become co-partners with the makers of the heavens and the earth. And to build a family is why men and women leave their parents and cling to one another, the two becoming as one. This was how Jesus handled the apostles' worries about divorce, while at the same time praising their highest ideals of marriage and leading them to a higher respect for women, children, and the home life. Blessing the Little Children That night, Jesus' comments about marriage and how children are blessed spread across all of Jericho. By the next morning, well before breakfast, scores of mothers carrying their babies or leading their children by the hand showed up asking Jesus to bless the little ones. 
the apostles went outside and tried to send the mothers and children away. But they refused to leave until Jesus had laid his hands on the kids and blessed them. This response just caused the apostles to raise their voices, and they started yelling at the women to go away. When Jesus heard all of this, he went outside offended and annoyed and roughly scolded his apostles, saying, Put up with little children coming to me. Do not stop them, because of such is the kingdom of heaven. It is true when I say to you that those who do not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will hardly enter it to grow up to the full stature of spiritual manhood. And after Jesus reprimanded his apostles, all the children came to him, and laying his hands on them, he spoke words of hope and courage to the mothers. Jesus often talked to his apostles about the celestial mansions, and he taught them that the advancing children of God must spiritually grow up there like children grow up physically on this world. And like this, the sacred will often seem to be common, like on this day when the mothers and children little realized that the celestial host of Nebadon was watching the kids of Jericho play with the creator of their universe. Woman's status in Palestine was much improved by Jesus' teachings. And it would have been the same across the world if his followers had not changed so much of what he had painstakingly taught them. It was also at Jericho while discussing how to train young children to worship, that Jesus impressed on his apostles the great value of beauty in influencing people, especially children, to worship. Jesus, through both teaching and example, showed people the value of worshiping the Creator in the midst of natural surroundings. He preferred to talk to the Heavenly Father among the trees and lowly creatures of the natural world. He took joy contemplating the Father through the inspiring spectacle of the starry realms of the Creator's sons in the night sky. When it is not possible to worship God in nature's church, people should do their best to create homes that are simple, artistic, and beautiful sanctuaries so that they will excite man's highest emotions to assist the mental part of spiritual communion with God. While truth, beauty, and holiness are powerful and effective aids to true worship, just by being flashy, massive, or elaborate does not help. Beauty is the most religious when it is simple and natural. How unfortunate that little children have their first introduction to public worship in cold, barren rooms lacking any beauty, good cheer, or inspiration to be holy. Kids should be taught to worship God outside in nature and only later go with their parents to churches that are at least as artistic and beautiful as the home in which they live.
the talk about angels. As they walked the hills leading from Jericho to Bethany, Nathaniel stayed by Jesus' side most of, their time, most of the time. Their conversation about children and the kingdom led to the subject of angels and how they minister to us. Nathaniel finally asked Jesus, Seeing that the high priest is a Sadducee, and since the Sadducees do not believe in angels, what do we teach the people about these heavenly ministers? Among other things, Jesus said, The angels are a separate order of created beings. They are entirely different from the material types of mortal creatures, and they work as a distinct group of universe intelligences. Angels are not part of the sons of God in the scriptures. Neither are they the glorified spirits of people who have progressed through the mansions on high. Angels are a direct creation, and they do not reproduce themselves. The angels only have a spiritual connection with the human race. As a man makes his way to the Father in paradise, he does go through a state of being that is similar to being an angel, but a mortal man never becomes an angel. The angels never die like man does. The angels are immortal unless, by chance, they become involved in sin, like some of them did with Lucifer's deceptions. The angels are the spirit servants in heaven, and they are neither all-wise nor all-powerful. But all of the loyal angels are truly pure and holy. And do you not remember that once before I told you that if you could see through spiritual eyes, you would see the heavens opened and you would witness God's angels going back and forth from the earth. It is through the angels' work, through their ministry, that one world can keep in touch with other worlds. Because have I not told you repeatedly that I have other sheep that are not of this fold? And these angels are not spies that watch you and then go and tell the Father what you are thinking and doing. The Father does not need spies to do that kind of thing because he lives in you. But these angels do keep the heavens informed about what is happening in other, more remote parts. And while serving the government of the Father and the universes of the sons, Many of these angels are also assigned to serve the human races. When I taught you that many of these seraphim are ministering spirits, I was not speaking in poetic or figurative terms. All of this is true, regardless if it is difficult for you to understand. Many of the angels are involved in saving men. Have I not told you of the joy that angels get when one soul decides to give up sin and begin the search for God? I even told you of the joy that is in the presence of the angels of heaven. In other words, that the angels 
feel a presence of joy around them in heaven that is not radiating from the angels themselves over that one sinner who repents. This joy coming from something other than the angels indicates that there are other higher orders of celestial beings who are also involved with the spiritual welfare and divine progress of man. Also, these angels are very much involved with how a man's spirit is released from the mortal body and how his soul is escorted to the mansions in heaven. Angels are the sure and heavenly guides of man's soul during that uncharted and indefinite period of time that comes between mortal death and the new life in the spirit world. And Jesus would have told Nathaniel more about the angels, but he was interrupted by Martha showing up. Some of her friends had seen Jesus and the apostles walking up the hills to the east and told her, so she ran out to greet them. All right, everyone, that's it for chapter 46, the visit to Philadelphia. Chapter 47, the resurrection of Lazarus will be up in just a few days. Defend liberty. Protect those kids. Get out there, serve man for nothing more than the sake of God. Bobby Keezer, out here. <laughs>